you're listening to This Nazarene Life, stories of young Nazarene clergy and their role models. This episode is sponsored by Audible. You can get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial over at audibletrial.com slash thisnazlife. They've got over 180,000 titles to choose from for all your devices. This author's story features Sarah Shin, Associate National Director of Evangelism for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship and author of Beyond Colorblind, Redeeming Our Ethnic Journey. Thanks for all you do for young pastors, and thanks for tuning in. I'm Brie Bowler-Jack, and I'm here with my guest, Sarah Shin. Sarah is the Associate National Director of Evangelism at InterVarsity. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So the first question I kind of ask everybody is, how did you end up where you are? And in your case, that's the Evangelical Covenant Church. Sure. Um, I was part of a church in the 2000s that was looking, it was non-denominational, had started that way. And I was looking to join a denomination. So there were different denominations that were considered. And the ECC really um, stood out because of a number of things. One was its commitment to multi-ethnic congregations, um, which was really compelling. Um, two was like its commitment to missions. It's just um, something that's uh, financially, in terms of percentage of the budget, as well as just its practice, is a very robust um, missions uh, history and mm. practice that's ongoing. So that was really powerful. The ECC also strongly encourages a racial righteousness journey, called, I think called San, um, you know what, I just got the name mixed up. Um, but yeah, so it, it's it's led um, by different leaders, but you basically look at different um, the history of the U.S. in terms of racial injustice and um, learning about that thing about what does it mean then to lead multi-ethnic congregations in that racial context. Mm. So that was really compelling to know that that's highly encouraged in its clergy. Um, and yeah, and they just a lot of values seem to fit. Uh, the ECC has a high uh, percentage rate of success in planting. Mm. And at that point, the church had been planted for several years, was looking to um, strengthen kind of its roots and become a more solid, robust congregation. So um, that was a great discernment process. Uh, so uh, later on, you know, my husband and I, we looked for a different ECC church and we're now at um, High Rock, which is in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Mm, so cool. Um, can you kind of tell us about your call to ministry and how you ended up doing what you do now? Yeah, so um, after undergrad, I got in early to a master's program at uh, my university. So I was doing city planning master's for like a year. And then I started working in city planning at an architecture firm. And while I was doing that, I decided to volunteer for university at the fellowship uh, that I'd kind of grown up in spiritually as mm. an undergraduate. Yeah. And I kind of put about like 10 hours a week, you know, mentoring different students, helping them think about um, how to do outreach in a relevant and authentic way to their to their friends, how to help seniors prepare for like life after college. And um, I think the work I was doing as a city planner was really interesting. We had clients from all over the world. Uh, we had clients in Dubai, in San Juan, Puerto Rico, in Oklahoma City, 
in Dallas and Boston. Um, so it was like exciting. Mm. But the, the funny thing was that despite that, just these sit down conversations with students, right, when they're bringing up some of maybe their fears about evangelism or some of um, their questions, uh, their difficult questions about faith. Um, I just really enjoyed that. And in particular, I loved seeing the light kind of go on mm. in their eyes when they're like, oh, they're learning something more about God, whether they're a Christian or not Christian. And kind of the the growing sense over those two years when I was volunteering was this is what I want to be doing 20 years from now, yeah. um, as exciting as my day job was. So then in 2007, I switched, you know, I, I completely switched gears. I, <laughs> and then I joined a varsity staff and I haven't looked back since. Did you, were you part of the kind of programming that you're doing now, or how did you end up doing what you're doing now at InterVarsity? Oh man, that's a long journey. Um, I worked with an Asian American chapter at MIT for several years. I uh, started team leading the many different chapters that were there, Asian American, um, multi-ethnic, Greek, um, just, there was a lot going on and um, it was a really formative time. Um, and then I started supervising a number of campuses, including MIT and Northeastern and other schools. We're trying to plant new chapters at um, campuses that didn't have a lot of Christian ministry going on. Yeah. And um, as I was doing that, I was uh, really helping different staff and students think about what does it mean to a relevant witness. And one of those things included uh, being kind of ethnically aware, right, mm. and having being able to share a gospel and embody a gospel that really did welcome every person um, mm. of every every nation, tribe, and tongue. Yeah. And as I was doing that, then um, I got to partner in different projects and got to train staff. And I started to have a more specialized role in um, training about ethnicity and race. And that coincided basically right around the time that Michael Brown was killed um, mm. in Ferguson, Missouri. And so uh, a lot of the stuff that I've been doing with students and staff locally in Boston, I started to do a lot more training across the country within university. Uh, so after many, several years of that, you know, I was really trying to think about what does it mean to talk about ethnicity and race in a way that's gospel centric and also actually something that's really compelling to non-Christians. Mm. Uh, I was partnering more with the evangelism department and then I ended up uh, deciding to join the evangelism department, and that's where I'm sitting now. That's beautiful. So you've written a book. Um, it's called Beyond Colorblind, Redeeming Our Ethnic Journey. Kind of tell me about the origin story of this book. How did it start? What inspired you to write it? Um, so the book was a product of some of those um, early explorations that I um, earlier talked about. I think for me, coming from a background in city planning where you have to learn a lot about uh, U.S. policy and uh, urban history and a lot of different decisions, that you you really learn a lot about the country, the things that you don't, you never really learned in high school, right, yeah. or, or earlier than that. And so um, for me, I was always entering into ministry um, and into spaces where I was mentoring students, kind of aware of a lot of things that affected current, you know, things like, oh, why, why is this city segregated, right? Or like, what are the implications of something that happened in, in 1950s, like today? Mm -hmm. So as I was doing that, um, I was figuring out what is it, I don't want to overwhelm them with a master's degree, right? Like that's not effective discipleship. So figuring <laughs> out what are the ways that I can actually help students engage 
Um, so what I was seeing was actually that um, there's a lot of really good stuff out there, both in the Christian and non-Christian world, about engaging in racial justice and engaging in reconciliation. But the two things that concerned me was, one, um, I was like, well, a lot of Christians don't even read that stuff by yeah. Christians, much less non-Christians, and they're both really valuable. Right. Um, and two, I was like, what are we saying that's different, right? What are we saying that's different, not dismissive of what non-Christians have to say, because there's a lot of good stuff, but what is actually the hope that the gospel offers into that? Mm. So that's where I was experimenting a lot, right, with different campuses, helping them think about what does it mean to talk about ethnicity and race in a way that doesn't deny um, things that are painful, but also says, like, actually, Jesus brings hope um, and healing. There's a possibility of that, though it takes obedience, right, and hard work on our part. Mm-hmm. And think about how do you do that in a way that invites every student to the table? Um, even white students are, are often very afraid of the conversation. Yeah. So those experiments started, you know, to work. Like, you know, students would be interested. They would engage in deeper friendship. Um, there was one time where we had a panel about cross-cultural friendships. You know, we had like, we had Asian, Black, white, Latino, like biracial um men and women speaking, you know, sharing their experience about cross-cultural friendship. Um, and uh, a Latina student, she stands up after, during the Q&A, and she kind of looks up around the room, and most of the room doesn't look like her. Most of the room actually was Asian-American. Um, and she goes, I realize I don't have any Asian friends. Right? And, like, the room's kind of staring at her, like, oh, no, like, we haven't been her friend. She's like, will someone be my, my, my Asian friend? Which, like, probably sounded like, you know, she wasn't necessarily trying to do tokenism, but she yeah. was just saying, like, hey, I realize there's a gap and it's a problem. Mm-hmm. But that uh, very, like, you know, vulnerable, kind of um, honest question ended up actually helping that um, college fellowship start to really explore cross-cultural friendships and intentional time together. And in that, they start to engage in each other's stories and actually show up for things that are really hard in each other's lives. Like if there was a racial incident on campus, then they would actually come together and say, how are you doing? How can we pray? What can we do to advocate? Mm. So it was actually seeing that happen in students, that awareness of each other's ethnic stories that seemed to actually provide the fuel for long-term community and commitment that uh, led to reconciling cross-cultural relationships and and really thinking about what does it mean to be people that pursue God's justice for a lifetime. So that then led to, you know, traveling across the country and getting to train in a lot of different contexts. You know, I live in Boston. You know, I, I got to train at um, staff at a native college in Fort Lewis, Colorado, like totally different contexts. Loves getting to hear more and partner with Native staff and yeah. hearing about um, different challenges and beauty in their journey. Got to train in like the Deep South, right, or mm-hmm. in um, San Francisco and um, in Missouri. And so there are a lot of different spaces where I was honing a lot of these things, but also gathering a lot of stories. A lot of um, people let me into their lives and their leadership. And often I was, you know, I'm leading these plenaries, I'm leading these trainings, and it was an incredible privilege to see God move, especially because these conversations are not, you know, they're not, oh, they're not like a walk in the park, right? right. <laughs> it's like, if you're looking for something that was, a, you know, easy, peaceful, don't rock the boat, like, this is not the conversation for that. But as um, we're taking steps of faith, I saw God do a lot of powerful, transformative things, so the book has all these stories of people that are saying, 
Lord, like I, I have an ethnic heritage and background that you gave me. Um, and there's beautiful things in, in it that have the Imago Dei like fingerprints on it. Mm. But there's also all of us, you know, we also bear the scars and the marks of sin, you know, whether it's uh, stuff that was done to us or stuff that we are people have done to others. Um, and the book then says, like, what does it mean for the gospel to bring healing, right? To recognize the beauty and also um, offer the hope of healing and mm. the power of healing towards change. And um, so those stories that are there, all from those travels, from getting to um, try out these things, seeing a lot of uh, fruit develop and um, these communities grow deeper in their commitment to each other. Mm. And the second half of the book is then thinking about what are the skills or what's the vision of the future that's needed to stay the course? Um, because a lot of times good intentions are are not enough. You know, we, we often, um, you know, when you, when you think about someone that's like trying to swim, right? It's like, well, good intentions are not enough to have that person like actually swim. They, they need to learn the skills and how to breathe properly, how to like, you know, water is a very different space to inhabit. And like same for like skiing, right? You actually need to learn how to ski properly and um, how to avoid certain things where you like crash into stuff. And yeah. I think with ethnicity and race, it's, it's so, it's so similar. And oftentimes we're like, oh, you just need to be a good person. I just mean nice to everyone. But then when really difficult things and obstacles come up, we don't know what to do or say because those muscles weren't developed. Mm. So my, my hope and my goal is that the church with a capital C would be more well-equipped to engage in those conversations, to be a prophetic voice that says there, there really is a different way. There's hope um, in the midst of the chaos. But instead of being colorblind, you know, and holding hands and seeing Kumbaya, we're actually called to then say, like, Lord, my ethnicity is something you're calling me to steward. How do I do that? And that looks different for each of us, but we're all called to steward our ethnic backgrounds for the sake of his glory and for the sake of um, kingdom reconciliation. And when we do that well, I think non-Christians find it incredibly compelling. And I think that's what is at stake right now as our country's divided. Um, there's a lot of painful stuff happening like everywhere. And, um, you know, the question and the hope for me is like, what is the church going to do? You know, what, what are Christians going to do? And Looking back in the history books, like what will the, the next generation, like 20, uh, 50 years, say about what Christians chose to do in the midst of um, this kind of division and chaos? Gosh, that's great. Um, kind of tell me about the, the process a little bit. What was the most difficult part about writing this book? I think the most difficult part of the book was not necessarily a specific moment, although the book did take several years to write as I was going through different drafts. Uh, one was like, what, what's the question that helps people like kind of enter in, you know, and realizing actually colorblindness was, was the main obstacle. Um, I didn't name the book until actually it was done. Oh, know? wow. But realizing colorblindness is a primary obstacle to actually getting to a space where we can engage our ethnic backgrounds and journeys. Um, I think the second thing, though, was really like uh, I really wanted to make sure that it actually covered a whole breadth of stories, that it was a book truly for everyone. Um, I still think there's even more, right, that, that there's more people in every racial um, and ethnic group that could be showcased. But I wanted it to be a book that wasn't just for one group. Mm -hmm. I 
wanted it to not just be a black and white binary sort of assumption. I, I wanted to make sure we included um, Native stories because often um, these conversations have not in the past. Um, I wanted to make sure Latino brothers and sisters um, stories were engaged and highlighted. So part of the tension for me was like, okay, which stories, right? There's so many stories. How do you honor them? How do you include them? And yet, how do you make it accessible so that, because there's so many stories in there for so many different backgrounds, how do you keep the reader engaged um, so that they see that it's relevant to them, but also they start to understand things that are different from their own experience. Mm. So that was kind of the dance um, that was always happening throughout writing the book. Uh, I, I think it was a fun dance. I don't know if it was like that was, quote unquote, the most difficult thing, but I think that was the most, uh, that was the challenge that was always present. Mm. Are there any stories that didn't make it into the book? Maybe you didn't have them yet or you didn't have room. Can you kind of tell us about maybe one or two of those stories? Yeah, um, I think what's been really fascinating for me as I've trained different speakers and preachers on um, how how to connect racial reconciliation with evangelism it's been really great to see actually the older generation particularly um, older white americans in, in churches when they're hearing this and they're like you know i i've never heard this before but there's a there's a deep openness that's like really soft-hearted that's been super encouraging um i remember speaking at a panel uh, at an AME church with uh, some, one of their pastors and with Jim Wallace and uh, this guy that has a lot of uh, Polish ethnic heritage came mm-hmm. up to me. You know, I think he was like 50s, 60s, and he was kind of like, you know, I've never thought about this before. But he was kind of processing on the spot his Polish heritage and ancestry and then visiting the family there and kind of how how striking that experience was. But he's mm-hmm. never really had space to like, connect it and so for him that was really significant because what I was saying was actually you, your ethnic heritage and background matters it, it affects um, how you engage with others and it's something for you to steward mm-hmm. so getting to actually see that like kind of start that slow turning from colorblind to like oh there's this there's a different way that's been very beautiful yeah. um, I think thinking about a different story is there's there's been a lot of uh damage done to Native Americans by the U.S. government, and unfortunately, a lot of Christian, both Protestant and um, Catholic sort of uh, spaces that were boarding schools for Native children, but Mm. unfortunately, it was basically a place where they were told to discard their language, their culture. Um, They were almost so so often, almost always abused um, physically, sexually. And so there's so much uh, stigma against Christianity and so mm-hmm. much distrust. And yeah, that, that's really high. Yeah. And so what was amazing was seeing um, a Native staff worker, Cortland, that I worked with. He worked on how does it mean for him to be a Lakota Native man that loves Jesus and to follow Jesus' way. And mm-hmm. um, he started to just share that and think about how do I share the gospel and lens of my ethnic story and my journey. And as he was doing that, um, he started to see native students like this. Jesus actually seems like I can say yes without discarding my ethnic heritage, mm. um, my native heritage and yeah. seeing new Christians in the native student community. Um, 
emerge was something that felt so significant. I was I was really grateful to hear about that, um, to witness that. Uh, there's there's like so many stories kind of like that, you know, where there's like little moments that don't seem very big, but I really think the turning from colorblindness towards being aware that God wants to do something, you know, with your ethnic story is huge. And then thinking about the power that um, ethnicity aware stewardship um, of, of the gospel, what it can do to communities that often are like, please don't, you know, even bring Jesus up because there's been too much damage done. So those are two things that stick out to me. What would be um, your message for, say, a Caucasian Christian who thinks, I don't know what I have to contribute to this conversation. I don't have an ethnic identity that I'm aware of. What, what do I do? How do I move forward if I want to contribute or be a part of this movement? Yeah. Yeah. And so I love if someone's that honest, I love it because that's a great space to start. Um, So the ironic thing is I'm not white. I'm, I'm Korean American, but I've actually gotten to train a number of white staff um, cohorts Mm. where this basically we're asking that question. Like, what does it mean that you have an ethnic heritage often that you don't really know anything about? Mm. What does it mean that you steward that? So usually it's kind of, we start with those, those very kind of questions and kind of spaces of, you know, admitting like I don't really know what to do next and then I give them homework I'm like hey go interview your family your your parents your grandparents maybe if you have great grandparents or you know aunties or uncles um, ask them about their your family history and the journey of immigration if you have one some not all white people have been here since like the Mayflower you know right some have were came like three generations ago or even two generations ago Uh, one of the pastors that our church is uh father is i think norwegian and his father barely spoke any english you know wow. <laughs> so he grew up you know he, he's like blonde blue-eyed you know and and he, he looks white but you know his his dad uh spoke an entire different language had an immigrant experience so after that then they kind of like you know compare notes as they ask like what was it like for them to come to the states uh uh, what were groups that they had tension with and it, and it brings up things that they didn't know um, but a lot of times there's different um, family stories and traditions that weren't passed on because they're, they're not always they're not always highlighted it depends if you're you have Irish or Italian descent that might not always be true that might be more strongly passed on but then um, that cohort then looked at those stories right and then thought about okay what's what's the beauty that you're hearing there uh, what's the brokenness that you're seeing there? And so then we're like, okay, so uh, what is God saying to you about that? Uh, what does he want to tell you that's beautiful about your story? What does he then want to tell you that, um, you know, about what's a brokenness? It might be idolatry. It might be racism. You know, it might be um, like apathy or or lack of just hospitality towards the other um, you know, um, there might be slavery involved, like, who knows, you know, there's, there's so much stuff. Um, and from the asking Jesus to bring healing, mm-hmm. what happens when that conversation happens and that um, formation time happens is then those men and women um, who were, had a lot of different heritage, you know, they had Irish, Italian, English, French, Canadian, like, you know, it ran the gamut. Because then they thought about then what does it mean, um, to then be leaders that are aware that they have an ethnic heritage, as well as 
a different racial experience than a lot of the students they led. Um, it wasn't mean for them to lead with both humility in terms of an awareness and a willingness to listen to the other stories. Mm. And then also um, a boldness in like, okay, what does it mean to equip students to declare the gospel? I think the thing that happened in them researching their own story and learning more was that they learned that this was something of value that that they weren't exempt from and, or excluded from. So it made them better listeners and made them um, less assumptive of like what people might say. And so they, they all ended up um, being much more effective as leaders, much more um, effective in welcoming others and raising up leaders of every ethnic background. You know, when you look at like the popularity of things that like uh, Ancestry.com, I think there's a real hunger, um, even in, in white, you know, Caucasian Americans of trying to figure out where am I from? Mm. You know, and you're, you're seeing that threat, not just in, you know, the U.S., but there's all these other spaces where they're using things like Ancestry.com. And I think there's actually something that's uh, very telling about that hunger, because you can't really steward what you don't know you have. Mm. I think also then with knowing that then there's a deeper engagement in issues that are difficulty, right? It might be um, some, a lot of the, you know, the issues of violence um, towards unarmed black Americans or the prison industrial complex or um, immigration issues or refugees. And so from there, there, there's, as people are reading, as white people are reading about these issues and engaging in them and learning more I can't really even pinpoint or describe that intangible thing that happens, but there's something about a deeper commitment that it becomes less of a cerebral exercise, mm. but there's a deeper engagement in it that helps um, white brothers and sisters that are in the church realize like, okay, I am going to be in heaven with these men and women that are different from me. What does it look like for me to care for them now? versus thinking this conversation has nothing to do with me. Right. Um, so my, I guess my answer to someone that's like, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't even know, you know, where my family is from. I, I'm not sure where I fit. It'd be, well, then actually find out, you know, uh, find out so you can be a better listener. So you can have deeper compassion and you can have a deeper vision of what, what it means for um, you to anticipate the kingdom and the final resurrection. Mm, that's great. I love that. Who do you hope reads this book? Who is the message um, aimed at? I hope that every Christian that's asking the question of like, what, you know, what do I do when there's so much chaos and tension, especially along racial and ethnic lines? Mm. What does the gospel have to say about this? I thought this was a secular thing. Or people that, um, yeah, that were like, I thought colorblindness was was the way, like, but something's not working. Like, all those books, I hope they read the book. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm hoping that the bridge serves as a, as a bridge to the existing resources. There's so many, there's so much great literature out there, um, whether it's uh, Latasha Morrison's Be the Bridge, uh, which is, a resource and an online Facebook community. That's a really great way to think about how do you how do you start the conversation with your church. Um, there's like books like The New Jim Crow or Disunity in the Church. There's there's so many different things to read, 
But if we don't think that ethnicity or race are significant and that God wants to say something about it, we're not going to pick up those books. We're not going to listen to those podcasts or watch those videos. So Mm. I'm hoping that people that need a bridge to get to the rest of those conversations, which I think is the vast majority of the church that they read this book. I also do know of a number of people that, you know, are always asking, like, I feel like I've been on this journey, but I don't know how to help my my church or my family, you know, my cousin um, engage in this. I don't know. I don't know how to. How do I translate everything that I've experienced and learned? One is, well, can't necessarily translate everything, but hopefully this book helps multiply those conversations. So I'm hoping that uh, small groups, you know, book discussion groups at churches that, um, you know, even churches that have, uh, you know, kind of a let's study this, let's look at this book together and, and think of what does it mean for our community or leadership teams, that that um, those groups also use the book to help churches then think about what does it mean for us to be more hospitable, what does it mean for us to be responsive to um, different needs and systemic changes um, that will need to happen. Mm, that's great. So what would you say is kind of the goal and the hope for people who read the book? What do they walk away with and um, begin to change in their own life? One, I really want people to no longer tout colorblindness as the best way of engaging in racial division or tension. Um, I'm hoping that instead of people walk away knowing and having a greater conviction that one, their ethnic story matters, mm. including people that have mostly European heritage, and two, that other people's ethnic stories matter. And then that we're actually called not just to be like, oh, we're we're diverse sitting in a room together, which really has nothing to do with relationship. You're just occupying, you know, warm bodies occupying the same room. Right. But instead there's like a deeper um commitment to knowing each other better to asking thoughtful questions Mm -hmm. and to actually walking with each other in some of the darkest valleys that we often go through there's a story I share in the book but you know when um, a lot of there was one week there were I think there were multiple kind of reports of different um, young unarmed black men being um, unfortunately killed in the hands of uh, law enforcement and you know I walked up to a black man that's a friend of ours and um, he's a father of a preteen and I was like hey um how can we be praying for you this is a crazy week like I can't imagine what it's like to be a father and you know, he just started crying because mm. he was like it just means so much that you would ask me which which says a lot right it says like actually he doesn't normally get asked this at church um, and it broke my heart because but it also made me think like I don't I don't want that to happen yeah. I don't want for someone um to be at a church that's that's really hurting from the things going on in the world, how that affects them, affects their family, and for them to feel like church is not a space where I can actually say I'm hurting, like my sister or my brother, like please like pray for me and support me and be my my community and family. Because if we can't do that for each other when we hurt, then we're not actually really the spiritual family that God's mm-hmm. called us to be. So I hope that with ethnicity aware stewardship of ourselves that we actually end up becoming more hospitable churches um, churches that are more deeply committed to reconciliation and justice Mm. i also hope that you know people walk away with some practical skills like chapter six and seven and eight there's just some skills about trust building um, alternatives 
to questions that are not welcoming, you know, um, different ways to engage people. So I think we, we need that, you know, oftentimes we get so, uh, you know, when someone says something wrong, we hear about something that, you know, or someone didn't know what to do. And we're like, oh, you know, how could that be? And, you know, oftentimes we're not taught how to engage in this conversation. Yeah. You know, um, most of us are not taught how to engage intentionally in a multi-ethnic space. We're taught like, oh, isn't it great? It looks so diverse. But when there's tension or confusion, we have no idea what to do. And my hope is that um, people that read that book will be, go on a longer journey of thinking it wasn't mean to be committed to Christ and to his body um, through tension and through places of disagreement and, and places of suffering, because I think that's where really our faith is tested. It's not when things are um, going well, although I'm grateful for those times. It's actually what are we like when, um, we're, when we're suffering? What are we like when we're hurting? What do we like when another person is hurting? What's our response? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I've been uh, talking to different um, people whose kids are in like, you know, Sunday school, right? Or in a youth group or things like that. Um, and uh, I was reminded, I'm like, I don't think I made this point in the book, but I guess I'll make it now <laughs> you know, <laughs> on this podcast is, you know, uh, one of them, his, his kid, um, was going on his trip and they're like, oh yeah, and then we're going to eat at a lot of different ethnic restaurants. And, and you know, the the guy and his, his kid, they're black. And he was like, what do they mean by ethnic? You know, like, do they just mean non, non-white? You know, I was like, yeah. He's like, yeah, I don't. He's like, I, I wish that that were not said that way, you know. Um, and so I was like, yeah, actually, um, all of us have an ethnic heritage. Mm-hmm. And all of us are ethnic. Um, and so part of me is like, you know, I think we should stop, you know, using the word ethnic as something that describes an other, mm. you know. And um, so that's something that I wish I had put more clearly in the book. And and yeah, and I think the I do often hear stories of people, you know, saying, um, yeah, like, you know, like, you know, American. Um, and it's not just it's not just people that are white. It's like, oh, you know, that that's like American food. And I'm like, what do you mean by American food? Mm. <laughs> like, And, you know, it's like, oh, well. Um, and that assumption is that white is American. Ugh. And I think we need to move away from that. Um, yeah. We need to move away from, you know, because, you know, there's maybe there's like Americana sort of things or, and I'm like, well, there's Italian food, there's Polish food, there's things that feel Southern, there's things, you know, there's there's all this stuff. And there's also, um, there's a lot of Chinese food in America that's like very American specific, you know, it, it would look really different um, in, in China, like, mm. You know, there's Korean kalbi that's called LA kalbi, not like it's a different cut, you know, in Los Angeles. So there's a lot of stuff that I think hopefully that um, as readers read the book that they start to expand their view of what ethnic and American means and that we no longer use ethnic to describe the other or um, American to describe just one group of people. That's mm-hmm. that's a hope I would have. Yeah, I mean, it seems like you're really passionate about the use of language in the conversation. Um, why do you feel like language is so important here in these, in these conversations, in these moments? Um, I think a theologian named Laman Sana, he said language is the womb of culture. And mm. um, I think a lot of times language words, uh, they have power. 
Genesis says like in the beginning, you know, like God, like he speaks. Right. And so um, that there's God made us to communicate with him and with each other. And so um, our words have power to do great good or great harm. I think a lot of times um, our words, when we don't know how to steward them, they cause harm, they cause greater friction, they cause, cause greater tension. And um, that's a loss. And then on the flip side, when our words are stewarded well and we use them to honor the other, there's great power uh, in that. And there's actually really effective witness. Uh, seeing non-Christians decide to become Christian because they're seeing the power the gospel has to bring healing to their ethnic story. An example was a friend of mine, Andrew, he, he's white, southerner. You know, he was sharing about his how God was bringing healing into his journey as, as a white man that's wrestling a lot with uh, the history of slavery and different things and what that mean for him as a son of the South. And when he invited students to say yes to Jesus, a Chinese student from a Buddhist household said yes. A Brazilian woman uh, whose family immigrated recently said yes. And a Nigerian woman said yes. None of them looked like him. They have very different experiences, right? But then actually they felt something so compelling about his story and how he shared it and the words um, that he used. And that was an effective witness of the gospel. Um, so for me, as someone that works in evangelism <laughs> and someone that's seen like a lot of the conversations um, bring fruit or actually go south is our words matter. And I think the shallow and maybe frustrating part of that is to be like, oh, well, everything's just so PC, you know, um, and, or someone can say we're just sick and tired of being PC. Well, it's like, well, yes, I, I can see how that's confusing. But actually, the flip side of PC is happening right now, right? Right, right now, everyone's just saying whatever they want, and you're seeing it all across, like, Facebook, like, Twitter, whatnot. Um, yeah. And it's kind of like, actually, our, our words can do great harm. The, the solution isn't being politically correct. The, the solution is actually stewarding our words um, to do kingdom good. So I think that's why I feel like language really matters. The words we say, the stories we tell matters. Um, and I think that's why a lot of times missions was so much about getting the, the story of Christ and, it's, and the idioms and things into the local heart language. Mm. If you can't translate the gospel into the heart language of a people you're trying to reach then you're not really going to be effective in yeah. actually sharing that story well thank you so much for coming on the show if if somebody wanted to get a hold of your book beyond colorblind um where would they go they could go to amazon or they could go to ivy press and um look up the title uh Sometimes things are sold out on Amazon, which has been surprising, but I think right now it's good. So <laughs> you can get a copy for the right. holiday. Hey, that sounds great. Well, thank you so much, Sarah, for taking the time for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you, Britt. It was a pleasure. <laughs>